if we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. Those who say that we're in a time when there are no heroes, they just don't know where to look. The sloping hills of Arlington National Cemetery, with its row upon row of simple white markers, bearing crosses or stars of David, they add up to only a tiny fraction of the price that has been paid for our freedom. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. France Authority on AM 1420. The answer. Good morning, Cleveland. This is the Bob France Authority. Pete Kersnell substituting for Bob, who had a rare lapse in judgment and is again risking his FCC license by permitting me to be behind this microphone. Another lapse in judgment was, was shown by the Cleveland Browns, Kevin Stefanski, Andrew Berry, and not drafting me yet again. They missed their opportunity, but I'm still a free agent. I have not signed with any other teams. If they want to make it to the Super Bowl, they know what to do. Thanks to our guest in the last hour, Mike Goldstein, and everybody else who's been listening. Our phone lines are jammed, uh, and I'm going to get to you, if I can, before our guest at the bottom of the hour, Jay Christian Adams, talks about election integrity. We're talking about what is the biggest threat to America, what fears do you have the most and i'm going to go by who has been holding the longest and it's a whole host of people so it appears as if john from chardon has been holding the longest but but tj peter Pat, everybody hold on i'm going to try to get you please keep your remarks short so i can get as many of you on as possible so john how are you today hey pretty good peter you know the problem all it all ramped up with the fraudulent election of, of biden uh, I mean, there's factual and uh, uh, circumstantial evidence galore for that, and you don't have time to listen to it, and I know you know it anyway. It gave the left more legitimacy as they undermine our greatest uh, form of government ever devised by man, founded on an idea, by the way, which has been the bedrock of our freedom, moving America to the best land of opportunity that has ever, ever been, and training us to market socialism and communism in in effect the banana republic yeah and john as you know there is right now a recount underway in maricopa county arizona uh which the democrats tried to stop on a couple of occasions now that recount is just an audit i mean it's not going to change the outcome of the election and has you have to ask yourself well if it's not going to change the outcome of election it's simply an audit it's just a recount why would you object to that? In fact, if you believe that everything was on the up and up, you would think that the GOP was going to have uh, egg on their face after this uh, audit. So why would you go to court to try to stop it? It's it's really interesting. Um, they yeah. keep talking about undermining confidence in the election, but it seems to me the way to do that is by trying to kind of cover up what was happening here. So if yeah. you 
hold on, John, at the bottom of, of the hour, um, I'm, we're scheduled to have my colleague Jay Christian Adams, who is an election law expert, probably knows more about this stuff than anybody in America. That's not an exaggeration. He is a member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. He is the head of the Election Law Center. He litigates this stuff, and in addition to that, he was in the voting section of the Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. Um, he is the left's worst election nightmare. John, <laughs> thanks very much. Looking for your, forward to it, Peter. Hold on, John, and, and keep listening, and we'll be addressing it. Let's go next to, I think it's been Peter who's been holding the longest from Elyria. Peter, are you still there? I don't know if Peter's still there. Peter, are you there? Can you hear me? I cannot hear Peter. So let's go next, then, to TJ. TJ in Cleveland. TJ, you there? Yeah, I'm here, Peter. You know, Peter, I spent a tour of duty in Vietnam fighting communists. And when I come home, I wanted to learn more about my enemy. So I read Saul Lewinsky's uh, Communist Manifesto. And it dawned on me the real threat had always been right here at home. And I watched over the years as these commie punks slowly infiltrated all our institutions, education, entertainment. And because the naivety of the American voters, they finally have been given the full reins of power. Like you said, they control all the levers of power now. Uh, if we don't stop them, I mean, this is going to be a sorry day for all of us. Even the people that voted for them are going to wake up someday and say, what the hell did I do? I mean, this is scary what's going on, Peter, and I, I don't know how to stop it at this point. Well, you're doing part of it right now by just speaking up. It's that little incremental thing. Even though it doesn't sound like much, I think when we start voicing our opposition to this incremental takeover of our systems or changing of our systems, what it does, I think, TJ, is I think it emboldens other citizens to do the same thing because we feel like we're not alone. As we talked with Mike Goldstein um, in the last segment, for a long time, parents thought that they were isolated, they were alone in their opposition, and then when that first person speaks up, others realize they're not alone. And I think you probably agree with me, TJ, correct me if I'm wrong, that the critical mass, that is the majority of Americans, oppose this wokeism, oppose the socialism, oppose critical race, but because the elites control almost all the levers of power today, especially in communication. They control almost every institution, and it seems as if Americans are alone in the struggle. People like yourself, uh, the parents that Mike Goldstein talked about, when we're isolated and don't realize we've got allies out there because no one's speaking up, we think we're alone and can be canceled in this cancel culture. So, TJ, thanks very much for your service, but... Do you see yourself as alone? Do you talk to fellow um, veterans and others uh, during your daily discourse? Do they say the same things you do? You know, I think more now. But, you know, I was very disappointed, uh, you know, like years past, how many of my fellow Vietnam veterans actually supported people like uh, Barack Obama, Bill Clinton. And, you know, I try to tell them, don't you know what you people are supporting? Uh, Don't you see what they're really all about? And they didn't. You know, they voted union or they voted. And, you know, the communists are good at pitting one group against another. And this is how they keep, like I said, their profile low. They get everybody fighting on each side. And and then, like I said, they just keep 
picking up the pieces, picking up the pieces. Uh, I do think a lot more people are starting to wake up now. I, I see that, like, in the neighborhood talking to people. I think there's a lot of people, supposedly, you think they're on the left. They really don't think that way. They're just, like you said, afraid of uh, this woke thing of being canceled. Yeah, and, you know, I think that in the past we looked at, you know, for example, the two-party system, Democrats and Republicans. Democrats have generally been home of liberalism, and cons- and conservatives have been more at home among the Republican Party, although, you know, Let's face it, there's been a significant cohort of Republicans that are almost indistinguishable from old-line Democrats. But the Democratic Party has changed. So has the Republican Party. But the Democratic Party now, especially in this last iteration, has gone not just completely woke, but they're embracing a full-throated embrace of socialism. AOC is their avatar. It is an amazing thing to see in such a short period of time. They no longer cloak... Their true ideology. They're forthright about this, at least at the national level, and it's become far more radical than anything we could ever expect. Um, TJ, do you see that? Do you, do you think that by talking to some of your friends and colleagues and neighbors that people realize this? I do. I, I'm meeting more and more people that have, uh, you might say, converted. And you know what people have to understand? Usually communists, they don't march in with weapons and take over. They do it from the inside like we're seeing now. And they fool the people. You know, you just ask anybody from Cuba, Argentina, uh, Chile. Uh, the people supported it in the beginning. You know, they didn't pay attention. And then once they got the levers of power, it was too late to stop them anywhere. And I'm afraid we're close to that, that tipping point right now, that it might be almost too late to stop them. One of your bumper songs should be, Pete, today my suggestion is The Doors, The End. Because we might be looking at that right now. It is a good song just from the melody itself. Um, I do think, you know, I've been concerned about the tipping point. And if you've listened to me on Bob France or any other places, I talk very often about are we at or near a tipping point. And I first started positing it, you know, in my uh, speeches to groups probably about six, seven years ago during the, the height of the Obama administration. I was wondering whether or not we could unpack what's been happening, whether or not we could reverse the, the trend. Have we gone over to the other side of the slope, uh, of the slippery slope, and there's no point of, uh, a point of no return? Um, I was very concerned about that, became alarmed about it during the Obama administration, more so after, you know, Biden won. But I do see considerable pushback, more than I've seen in my lifetime, from just ordinary individuals. Some of it was 1619 Project. A lot of it was all of the leftism, from immigration to the kind of capitulation to China in almost every economic sense, um, just kind of ignoring the profound threat that they pose to us and all manner of leftism that infects so many of our institutions. I'm a little bit more encouraged now than I was even six months ago. But, TJ, thanks so much for your call. Thanks for your service. We're going to go to a break. Pam is going to be on the other side if she can hold on. She's been holding on for a long time. We'll get to as many other people as possible before we go to our guest, Jay Christian Adams, at the bottom of the hour.
And we're back on the Bob France Authority. Pete Kersenow substituting for Bob France. We've been talking about what scares you. What are the biggest threats to America today? We've had a number of people who've given us great comments. We have a number of people on hold. The next one in line is Pam from Rocky River. Pam, what scares you the most? Yes, good morning. Um, what scares us the most here in Rocky River uh, is the teaching of critical race theory in our schools, in our public government schools. Uh, I'm part of a group, we're a grassroots group that just emerged over the last couple weeks. Um, we found each other in different clusters, but what brought us all together was the fact that we went to the Rocky River School Board website and looked into their diversity program. That's what they're calling it now, diversity and inclusion. And to many people, you know, including conservatives and just people that aren't that informed, it all sounds good on the surface. But when you investigate what it really means, it's critical race theory. There's no question about it. We did our research. We found out they're teaching microaggression, unconscious bias, systemic racism, socioeconomic disparities, you know, the whole list. That is critical race theory. Uh, we, we got ourselves together. We put a letter together to the school board, to the mayor, um, you know, to, to the city council, everybody we could think of. We blanketed the community to let them know. We understand that's what this is. Today, there's a levy on the ballot for the school, and it's the only one on the ballot. We do not want to support this school until they become transparent with the community. You know, parents need to know their children are being indoctrinated. This is a very, I'm, I'm not going to use the word scary, I'm going to say dangerous. It's a dangerous program to indoctrinate children with these ideas. Um, we, we just, you know, we need to investigate, and I hope people in surrounding communities do this because it's everywhere. What we did surface is, where is this coming from? There is an organization called the Diversity Center of Northeast Ohio. I believe they're located in Beechwood. And if you go online, check them out. It's all there. Um, it, you know, again, it, it, it sounds in many ways, uh, at first blush, it sounds good and wholesome. And, of course, all of us want to be welcoming and inclusive with, within the schools. Of course, that's a given. Uh, in fact, I think Rocky River is one of the most compassionate um, school districts. I, I was a sub there many years ago. I mean, we bend over backwards for any student that has any sort of a, you know, a special need or requirement. They're wonderful. They're absolutely wonderful. But this has taken a different turn. In the name of inclusion and diversity, you know what I'm saying? They're trying to make it sound like, well, we just want everybody to be kind and compassionate. Please don't fall for that. Look into your school board and, and as I said, now we did meet, we met with the superintendent. He refused to admit that. In fact, he stated three times during our, our very nice discussion, you know, we, we went in there, not hostile. We said, let's talk. We need a conversation. And he insisted this is not critical race theory. So, yeah. so this, this is what we need to, you know, we have to start to educate people in the community. I'll say one last thing. We, we went around the community, and I'm telling you, we did this all in about a, less than a week. I, I can't believe how quickly we were able to mobilize. Uh, but as one of your callers said, you know, when you get the word out, people start coming out of their shell now. We went door to door to get signatures for this letter that we presented. And I'm telling you, people were shocked. They had no idea what was going on in the schools. Sometimes they were people that didn't have kids in the schools anymore. So, you, you, you know, you tend to step back. You don't really need to know those things. We've got to get involved. 
and I encourage everybody to contact their school superintendent, go to the webpage, check this stuff out, and start to educate your community. We have a group called Rocky River Citizens for Transparency. We are just asking for them to be truthful. Let the people know, and then let them decide. But, but the truth is not getting out there. It's very, in my humble opinion, it's deceptive. It's deceptive. That's yeah, my comment. That's a great comment. I let you speak because it was one of the best digests, digests of critical race theory, how pernicious it is, how it's spread. But it also is heartening because I have heard the same tale from scores, literally scores of parents across the country who've contacted me concerned about critical race. And they've said it's, it's the same progression that people are not aware of what's going on and they're oblivious to it. And, you know, they've dressed it up in nice language like diversity and equity and inclusion. Pro tip, by the way, if you hear the term equity outside the realm of home finance, you know someone's taking you for a ride. But they dress it up this way, and so we're kind of oblivious to what's going on. And then when we find out about it, people like Pam step up all across the country. The the kind of uh, organizing that happens organically is an astonishing thing and a heartening thing to see. We can win this fight. And I would say this also. I think the Democratic Party, or progressives in general, may have made a giant strategic error by going with this critical race theory that almost everybody rejects. Again, like you said, Pam, people of goodwill, you know, and most Americans are. They're in favor of an open and inclusive society, but what's happening under the aegis of critical race is anything but that. It's closed. It divides people into separate camps, and it teaches Racism. It is the opposite of Martin Luther King's injunction related to content of character rather than color of skin. We are going to the bottom of the hour. Pam, thanks so much for your comment. Mike, Tom, and others who've been holding. Unfortunately, we have a guest at the bottom of the hour who's going to be joining us with respect to election. I know that Tom wanted to talk about elections and the threat that poses to the United States of America. But we have perhaps the premier election law expert in the country coming on in just a couple of minutes. Thanks very much to listening to this segment of the Bob France Authority. We'll come back at the bottom of the hour. And we're back on Salem Radio 1420, the Bob France Authority, Pete Kersenow substituting. We've been talking to the greatest threats to America. What scares you most? A lot of people have had a lot of great ideas. It's been a great discussion. We're inundated with phone calls. And election integrity is one of the issues that many have cited as one of the great threats, if not the greatest threat to America. And I'm pleased that we have perhaps the greatest authority on elections in America, at least I perceive him to be. He's my colleague on the Civil Rights Commission. He is head of Election Law Center. He was a former Justice Department attorney in the voting section of the Civil Rights Division. I know of no one who knows more about elections than my guest and friend, Christian Adams. Christian, how are you? Hey, Pete. Great to be here. How are you? I'm I'm doing well. We've had some great callers. People are, uh, they're jazzed. There's so many things that have happened over the last several months that have gotten conservatives riled up and I think has stirred the pot with respect to people who aren't necessarily engaged. But one of the overriding factors is a perception, at least, that 
something went wrong with the last election. Now, some people think that the, the election was outright stolen. Others aren't willing to go that far, but do think that there were some significant problems with respect to election integrity. And you and I talked about this a year ago. I remember contacting you, or you contacted me, and you had written a number of articles along with our mutual friend Hans von Spakovsky, been on Fox, talking about the fact that you believed that the pandemic provided a camel's nose under the tent, as if they needed one, for progressives to change the election systems to their advantage. Can you elaborate upon that? Right. Let's start at the beginning. State legislatures pass laws. Duly elected members of state houses pass the laws to run our elections. Governors who are elected by the people sign those laws, and those laws become the standard for how we're going to run any election. Everybody knows in advance gone through the political process we all agree on it you can look it up pete you can look it up in the book right so that's how we run elections for decades well then came COVID, and all bets were off judges bureaucrats administrators were changing the laws of our elections by themselves there wasn't a there wasn't a legislature or governor involved it was bureaucrats and State court judges rearranging the law contrary to what the—that is the number one phenomenon that occurred in the 2020 election in response to COVID that made the big difference. The second one, which we can talk more about, was the influx of private money to election offices to tell them what to do. But you're right. I mean, it was chaos theory. It was just complete chaos. Let's talk for a moment about the influx of money. And I think— some people are aware of it. It's not necessarily the number one issue on people's minds. They think that somehow there was fraud in the election, that there was, you know, the, the kind of stuffing of the ballot box, the stopping of the counting in several locations, you know, just kind of mysteriously with Trump with a big lead, and then all of a sudden, all of a sudden, Biden's got all kinds of... Those are the kind of things that you hear about. But there, ha- there was a significant amount of money that came from serious organizations. By serious, I mean very well-funded, like uh, the Zuckerbergs, for example, giving, I think it was $400 million to local um, elections boards, correct? Yeah, $450 million. That's $450 million of private money went to key election offices around the country in large urban areas like Philadelphia, Detroit, Atlanta, Phoenix, to tell those election offices what to do, literally, to change their business practices, to change their policies. And by the way, Pete, this dovetailed with the first thing we talked about, which was changing the rules. In other words, bureaucrats and judges were changing the rules to allow certain things to happen And then all of this private money rushed in to make them happen. The private money also, by the way, bought a lot of radio ads, like on Spanish-language radio in Philadelphia, to urge people to get out to vote. Nothing wrong with people getting out to vote. But when you spend a million dollars only on certain language radio ads, it's clearly got a partisan purpose. And that's the other thing that happened. The two things worked together, changing the rules at the last second without a legislature being involved, and private money. Now, some people, when they hear this, they'll hear, that's voter fraud. What I'm telling you, Pete, is they did it in such a way that it had the imprimatur of legal, of being legal, not voter fraud. Yeah, and that's what's what's troubling about this, that um, 
it's still in effect and can be replicated again in subsequent elections, not just presidential elections, but we're talking about congressional elections coming up in about a year and a half. We're talking about the Senate uh, elections that affects a third of the Senate. And these things are still in place. But the, the obvious question that listeners are wondering is where I, you were sounding the alarm and I was alarmed. Where was the GOP? Who's fighting on our behalf? Well, you know what? You really almost can't worry about the GOP because they have been AWOL on this issue for for decades because they had something called a consent decree that was in place in a case arising out of New Jersey, and the consent decree uh, prohibited them from doing certain uh, election security activity. Well, they got it in their heads as an institution. They can't even think about this stuff. They can't talk about this stuff. And and so what it meant was they did nothing about this stuff for a long time. So the muscles weren't even there. There was it wasn't a question of muscle memory. They didn't have any muscles, and and they just didn't look at this at all for twenty years. Yeah, and the reason why they don't think and talk about this, at least one of the principal reasons, is they're afraid of being called racist. You know, the card that the Democrats play all the time and people are sick of. Uh, I think the, the Republicans, to a large extent, have overestimated the salience of that particular charge, that they think they can actually be tagged with that and that people haven't gotten wise to it. So they do that, for example, in, in Georgia with respect to H.R., I'm sorry, not H.R. 1, but the Georgia election uh, laws. What's your take on Georgia? Everyone keeps saying on the left and in the media, but I repeat myself, that my goodness, what was going on in Georgia was racist. It really tipped the scales in favor of white supremacy. Yeah, well, here, here's, here's all the horrible things that, that, that happened, for example, and I'm being sarcastic. Georgia prohibited the use of private money in elections, and that is the number one thing that, that uh, needed to happen and the number one thing they're the most upset about. Because you can't look. What if I went to my DM, the state police? And I said, here's $100,000. I want you to not enforce speeding in my neighborhood, right? And and telling them what to do. It's the same exact stuff that's going on with the private money. The second thing that happened there was the Georgia voter ID law, which requires you to show a photo ID when you vote. It's 15 years old. It got approved by the Justice Department in 05. Uh, It got upheld by the courts. They said, look, with all these new mail ballots going out, you have to put your voter number on the application, your driver's license number, or just a copy of a utility bill to establish you are who you say you are. So it protects people. It protects their vote. So people aren't out there voting someone else's ballot where there's no supervision. That's the long and short of the so-called objectionable provisions is no private money, and write down your voter number. And, and isn't it true that the current status of the Georgia law, election law, is actually more liberal, and by that I mean uh, a lot more expansive and permissive than the laws in many other states that, uh, you know, my goodness, Democrats have the majority in? Yeah, including Colorado, which is ironic, uh, given the all-star game. But, for example, Delaware. Delaware has no early voting at all. It has no, uh, you know, none of the provisions of, of, uh, of Georgia law are present in Delaware. You can't do any of those things. 
Um, and there's other states like that. They don't have any early voting. Uh, you can't vote by mail. Uh, there's, you know, most of the states in the Northeast, for example, um, have old style election systems. So it's ironic that, um, you know, states like Delaware are actually worse. Yeah. And, you know, there are a number of issues with respect to voting that the Democrats like to highlight as being, you know, oppressive and racist. By the way, uh, about 15 years ago, we had a hearing on the Civil Rights Commission about voter ID. And, of course, all of the usual suspects claimed that voter ID was racist, had disparate impact on people of color. But what was interesting is when we got rank-and-file people of color to testify in one panel, I asked one of the witnesses, a black black woman who is probably, I think, about 70 years old, whether or not she had difficulty obtaining ID, and she reached into a purse and started pulling out all manner of ID. And one of the reasons is because sometimes some of our, our black citizens, some of our poorer citizens must depend on ID issued by government to access certain programs. Actually, I had more ID than, you know, the, the, the average bear. But if, if you're going to highlight Christian, uh, one aspect of, uh, voting controls or voting integrity that is the most important, like, uh, the, the expansion of mail balloting or the um, the relaxation of voter ID rules or early voting, which do you think is something that you should first concentrate on to preserve election integrity? Well, it all starts with good list maintenance, and that is a mess around the country where uh, you have to have the proper names on the rolls if you're going to be moving to mail balloting. That's That's a given. The other thing is you need to have transparency. Those are the two most important things. Uh, in other words, you're allowed to watch the election process, and that didn't happen either in Michigan, for example. But let me go back to what you said about people have voter ID. This is an incredibly popular uh, pr- a provision. You have every demographic supports voter ID in large majorities, black, white, Hispanic, Democrat, Republican, that's the dirty little secret. If you're out there listening and you don't like voter ID, you're in a tiny minority, a tiny minority, because everybody else supports it in large majorities. The numbers are like 75 percent of of of, uh, of of folks. It's like 67 percent of, of African-Americans support voter ID. So if you're on the other side of this issue, you're an outlier. You're 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 the one who's outside of the mainstream. And that's what you never hear from the mainstream media, speaking of mainstream. Uh, and you never hear from the Brennan Center or the Democrat orthodoxy how wildly popular voter ideas. Yeah, and getting back to another component, the early voting that uh, we've just talked about, um, you know, they've expanded early voting, so it seems like you begin voting almost a year before <laughs> the actual election. One of the concerns I've gotten, I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, is, you know, we see during every election cycle, things occur in the run-up to an election. Maybe in the last week or two, something occurs. Now, very often, it's an opponent dropping something at the last minute to affect the election. But in the last election cycle, we saw the media suppress information negative to their favored candidate that doesn't come to light. And, for example, a number of people, I think a critical mass of almost 38%, I think it was, of voters would have changed their vote had they heard about had they heard about the Hunter Biden laptop issue. That would have changed the outcome of the election. But it occurred prior to election day, I think a couple of weeks before election day. 
Do you think there's any kind of appetite on the part of anyone, Republicans, I don't care who it is, to get back to where we were before, maybe not having just one election day, but to shorten the early election period? Well, I I wish there were, because I think election day is like the last remaining cultural institution in America when we all do something together. Maybe the Super Bowl, but it's a shared experience of people you disagree with standing in line, uh, putting up with the signs of your opponents. It's a healthy, especially for the woke uh, speech uh, Nazis on campus, it's a healthy exercise to see people who disagree with you, right? And that's what Election Day was uh, for many, many decades, for a hundred years. We all came together as Americans, voted in person on Election Day. And now, like you said, Pete, it's like Election Month, and there's surprises. But I want to share something with you that's important to understand. The left doesn't view voting as a contemplative exercise. It's not a question of issues. Instead, it's an expression of groupthink, of racial identity politics of robotic automaton voting, where if you're from this demographic, you will vote a certain way, so it doesn't matter what the issues are. And that's how they view it. And so early voting fits with that model of, oh, uh, just raise your fist and go express your will, because we know what you think. And it doesn't matter if it's October 15th or November 5th, you're going to vote the same way no matter what. So early voting is part of their model of lack of contemplation, lack of thought about the issues, and just a raised fist voting like a group. Yeah, and and that is an issue. Uh, we're going to be going to break. I hope we have some additional time at uh, when we come back. Christian, if you can hold on, I've got at least one other comment, one other question to ask of you. But we're going to go to a break. We'll come back on the other side talking to Jay Christian Adams, civil rights commissioner and election law expert extraordinaire. And we're back with election law expert extraordinaire Jay Christian Adams, member of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And we only have a couple of minutes. And the question that is on the minds of most everybody, and I know some of the callers here wanted to talk about this. We weren't able to get to everybody. We got flooded with a number of phone calls, very, very good comments. But you're almost uh, kind of scared to ask this question for fear of being canceled or maybe even investigated by the FBI. Certain things are off limits. But the $64,000 question in the minds of almost everybody is, is there, and I won't ask whether or not the election was fraudulent, but is there any way of knowing whether the election of 2020, November 2020, accurately reflected the legitimate votes cast by voters? Well, Pete, that goes back to my, my first uh, comment that the, legi- the votes cast in Pennsylvania were not legitimate because they didn't comply with Pennsylvania statute or the right. votes, you know, the, the, so we, we set rules ahead of time, same with Michigan. Those aren't legitimate votes because uh, they didn't comply with the law. I mean, we, we filed the Public Interest Legal Foundation, of which I'm the president, we filed a lawsuit in Virginia to stop Virginia 
the Department of Elections said, oh, mail ballots can come in late with no postmarks. Well, wait a minute. That's not what the statute says. So we filed a lawsuit and we stopped them. We were actually successful in a case brought by my organization. Uh, that didn't happen in other states. And, you know, the Pennsylvania place, like, oh, well, whatever. So I'm afraid the answer is no. And that's frightening to think that our democratic republic is subject to this type of manipulation seems too soft a term. Christian, if there's anything that citizens can do to see if we can right this ship, this election ship, what can be done? What's, what's, if there's one thing that could be done among many, what would you do to see if we can get this thing moving in the right direction again? Pick up the phone and call your senator. This will take two minutes. Call your senator and say, don't pass the federal takeover of elections. It's called H.R. 1. It's, it's in the pipeline. It passed the House. It's in the Senate. It may pass the Senate by one vote. It may lose by one vote. It hangs in the balance. H.R. 1 would totally take over federal elections. All the chaos of 2020 would be a federal mandate. And so I don't care if you're in Ohio. Uh, I don't care if you're in West Virginia listening on the Internet. Uh, call Joe Manchin. Call your Ohio senators. Say do not support H.R. 1 because it would create a federal takeover of elections to do bad things. And it would effectively be cementing in place democratic hegemony, progressive hegemony for the foreseeable future. Isn't that correct? Well, they say so. Jim Clyburn, who's the majority whip in the House from South Carolina, said so, that this is what they need to pass to reelect Democrats. So they've made it a partisan issue. That's why it passed only on partisan lines through the House. It's a... it's a huge, massive federal takeover. And could it be subject to constitutional challenge? Well, that's funny you ask, because not only does the legislation rig the election, it rigs the litigation, Pete. How many times have you seen this? The the legislation in Congress literally says you can only file uh, in one court, in D- District of Columbia, a federal court, and you can only have one lawyer representing the, the challengers. You can only have one brief. You can, and they literally limit the authority Amazing. of lawyers to challenge the constitutionality of the bill. Jay Christian Adams, expert on election law, thanks so much. Thanks to all of our guests, those who are still on hold. Sister Mary Grace, Tom, Christian, everybody who's presented their just erudite comments today on a whole host of issues. But remember... This election issue is extremely important. We must call our senators, stop it, or we lose our ability to affect the outcome of elections. Peekers now for Bob France. Thanks, Ohio.